More than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. But there's actually photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. You're tuned to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It is currently just after 7 p.m. and on a Sunday, that can mean only one thing. It is time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Daniel Watkins. And I'm Adrian Gallo. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out all about the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration where you can find out all about our guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and tonight we're lucky to be joined by Amy Heisey from the School of History, Philosophy, and Religion. Of the people I have talked to, in my opinion, Amy's work has the highest potential to be turned into an excellent movie. Secret communication networks, high-stakes international travel, forbidden knowledge, and the Spanish Inquisition. (laughs) Welcome to the show, Amy. Thank you. That you say that's exciting. a fair assessment of your topic list? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> well, I was excited to, uh, to talk about this, not just because it would be good fodder for a movie studio, but because it deals with a lot of different layers that are also themselves fairly hidden. Right. So a lot of the guests that we talk to are scientists mm-hmm. and as such, they have to be thinking about the way that instrumentation or nature can play tricks on the observer. Right. But for a historian, you have an added lens that not only are, are you trying to interpret events, you're seeing it through the eyes of different people. Right. So, so you will only get a restricted view if you're right. lucky. <laughs> and it's really interesting to me because you have to have like the right picture in your mind of who is doing the recording and why are Mm -hmm. they recording it? What are some of the kinds of people whose records you've been using and what kind of lens did they have? So um, mostly I've been able to um, access uh, a few different types of documents, primarily uh, inquisition trials are one of them. Um, It each trial details the questioning and in some cases in vivid graphic detail, the torture of, um, in this case, Jewish surgeons who came before the Inquisition. Um, So like they record every turn of the wheel, every shout of pain. um, And the line of questioning is very directed, um, very directed, Um, towards trying to find out any instances of heresy or of um, practicing Judaism in the vice royalties. 
Um, I also work with uh, inventories of sequestered goods. Um, so after someone was denounced to the Inquisition, officials um, would take the accused in, into custody and sequester their goods. They seized their goods, which were then inventoried. We have these documents. These actually often tell us more than um, a record of the trial um, because they tell us about the person's interests. We have inventories of their books, uh, inventories of their collected artwork. It tells us about their business dealings. Uh, we have their ledgers, what types of trade they engaged in. They might have within their inventory an excess of fabrics or of dye. Um, and so it gives the historian an idea of what goods built their fortunes. Um, if you had your goods inventoried and you had debts, your creditors could go, your creditors could go to the Inquisition official, officials and receive payment for your debt. And then any remaining goods were kept by the Inquisition. They were not returned to families. Um, we also have some primary source uh, 17th century medical texts. Um, these were the first medical texts written by surgeons on the American, American continents using newly acquired knowledge of indigenous medicinal plants, of Materia Medica. And this really tells us about a really dynamic medical world. Um, so we have this collision of Afro ritual practices and later um, Western, Western in quotations, Galenic or Hippocratic medicine, uh, colliding with indigenous practices as well. And this, these all come together to form an incredibly diverse, uh, dynamic and fluid changing world of medicine um, and medical practitioners. So it really gives us this image of um, a, a definitely not a static, not an unchanging place. Um, so yeah, those are the main sources that I get to work with. Oh, there's so much that I want to go into with that. It's <laughs> so interesting. Uh, could you give us like a, a brief bio sketch of kind of a composite of the people that you've been studying? Yeah, so um, I picked one out um, because with the limitations of quarantine, you kind of get restricted to records that you're able to access um, digitally. <laughs> Um, but for, I guess, for historical context, in 1508, uh, Ferdinand of Aragon issued a decree that stated that Jews, Muslims, converts from either faith, um, and neither their children or their grandchildren should be permitted to travel to the newly claimed territories of the vice royalties. Um, they sought a really strictly Catholic territory apart from the indigenous peoples who were already there. Um, but the fact is, as a historical reality, many Jewish and converso practitioners and just Jewish and conversos in general did make it to the vice royalties. So how do we unearth their voices is sort of what I'm trying to work um, with. This one surgeon that I've kind of picked out for you, I guess, <laughs> uh, his name was Blas de Paz Pinto, and he was born in Evora, Portugal. He was also educated in Portugal, though we don't know exactly where. Uh, the passenger registry um, from Cartagena when he arrived in 1622 uh, lists him as a licensed surgeon. So we know that at some point he sat and passed a university exam to practice medicine. Um, he was, I guess, what we would call a slave flipper. He bought six slaves and treated them using his medical knowledge and then sold them for a profit. 
Um, he actually also engaged in small other trade ventures, including dyes and fabrics, um, things we know from his inventories of sequestered goods, um, but nothing like the scale of people who made their fortunes from mercantilism. Um, but Pinto owned a ranch on the edge of town in Cartagena where he grew medicinal plants for his practice. He was also the mayordomo or sort of the head of two confraternities, which are strictly Catholic institutions. Um, and these are basically religious brotherhoods that are a key aspect of viceregal life. They ran hospitals, they arranged funerals, no hospitals that existed outside of basically church administration. Um, it was an entirely ecclesiastical function. Um, and so these hospitals that he served, uh, that he worked with as the mayordomo of the confraternities are places where he would have practiced medicine. Um, in the mid 1630s, his network that we'll, I guess we'll probably get into later was compromised. He was denounced as a Jew by someone from within his network under questioning from the inquisition. And he was also denounced by an economic competitor um, a former slave who worked as a surgeon in Cartagena and treated a lot of this, the same clientele. So we see that these networks were really susceptible um, to uh, penetration from outside malicious sources. Um, he was arrested in July of 1636. Um, about eight months later, he received uh, torture. Um, and as a result of his torture, he received two contusions. He had to have his two big toes amputated at the joint. He got lockjaw, likely as a result of tetanus, and he died nine days later in 1637. So that's sort of his uh, snapshot of his life. So um, I'm, because I don't typically read 17th century literature, uh, <laughs> can you help me kind of encapsulate what was happening at this time. So like I did a very brief like Wikipedia search just to like kind of orient myself and yeah. there's, you know, a big scientific revolution that's occurring. Um, the East India Trading Company or the Dutch East India Trading Company was just started. Mm -hmm. um, Mount Vesuvius erupts in, you know, in the 16, <laughs> 1600s. Um, you know, like, so it helped us kind of paint where, where this kind of, uh, kind of European Spanish civilization is and okay. how we're beginning to get into, as you had mentioned already, the practices of, of science and how we kind of start treating patients and mm -hmm. how the passing of knowledge is typically in these institutions, but for, for, you know, for the people that you're interested in, you know, the, these, these, these Jewish nations mm -hmm. couldn't access those right. formal institutions. So they had you know, a back door to, to get that in. So help right. us kind of frame where we are in, okay. in context here. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I would say probably mm -hmm. most um, accessible would be the slave trade. Um, so uh, as I mentioned, Blas de Paz Pinto traveled from uh, Portugal, and he arrived in Cartagena from Angola. So he traveled to Africa first um, before coming to um, the vice royalties. Um, it's been hypothesized that he served as a surgeon on a ship to come over, and that's how he paid his passage. Um, but we, this is, how do I say this? <laughs> um, I guess in the context of the slave trade, 
um, Portugal has sort of the unhappy um, designation as the nation that started the slave trade. And so that's sort of the context where we fit in here. Um, within the Atlantic slave trade, more went to Latin America than came to the United States. Um, so these um, slaves would come into two authorized ports within Latin America, either Veracruz in Mexico or Cartagena in Colombia. Um, and then most often in Cartagena, they would um, travel over land to the Viceroyalty of Peru where they would work in the mines um, unless they became urban slaves. And that's where we see a lot of um, slaves who brought professions with them over from Africa. Um, as I mentioned, there was an economic competitor who um, as a slave worked in a hospital, he got training as a surgeon and then bought his own freedom and um, practiced as a surgeon in Cartagena alongside surgeons who were university educated. Um, so I guess that sort of situates it contextually in the um, Atlantic world. Um, and then as far as the networks of knowledge and sort of um, discrete knowledge, um, I think you mentioned the term nations and that's really perfect. <laughs> um, what we have, uh, historians have established these, the existence of these networks or nations that were created by inhabitants of the vice royalties. And they consisted of fami uh, familial, economic, kinship, or faith-based ties that facilitated the preservation and practice of Jewish knowledge, faith, and culture. Um, I tend to refer to these as sort of survival networks, just given the massive scale and reliance that people had on these networks. They provided a space in which to transmit and receive knowledge for Jews in the quote unquote new world. Um, this was a place where Jews could circulate news or information of family and kin in other places, a place to maintain their faith in secret. Um, and so when we can travel again and access archives again, I'm hoping to find that maybe this was also a place where um, medical knowledge was also preserved and transmitted in the same ways that cultural knowledge was. Um, but as I said, these networks were really susceptible to economic competition um, and it ultimately placed them at risk um, for prosecution by the Holy Office. Um, the networks were really, really sustained and built through endogamy, um, the practice of marrying within one's own social or cultural group. Um, these endogamous um, alliances, basically, they um, forged these survival networks and they combined households, they solidified economic alliances to strengthen the survival network across the globe. We have extensive networks that um, reached to Africa. Again, if we're talking about the slave trade, um, they're in Africa, they're in Europe, they're in the Americas, in some cases they're even in Asia. Um, and so apart from transmitting um, and harboring religious knowledge, um, <clears throat> these were also places, these were also networks of trade. That was sort of the facade um, that hid the transmission of religious knowledge. Um, the trade also enabled transport of people to others in the network, um, like to known safe houses within the network. This was a safer way to enter where you weren't supposed to be if you are in um, 
sort of behind the facade of trade. Um, so yes, that's, I guess that's the idea of the networks. And in Spain, especially, it was um, forbidden for people in the uh, Jewish culture to uh, have specific professions, which was kind of, if I understand right, it was the case over quite a lot of Europe, which is yes. why a lot of um, Jewish people were driven to specific professions. Um, and so if you wanted to find a job doing anything other than like a the couple things that you're allowed to, you have to find a way to go behind the scenes to do it. My understanding is that mm -hmm. part of the reason that these networks were important is so that people could escape from the persecution levels that they faced in Spain mm -hmm. and make it to the new world mm -hmm. um, where the oversight was not quite as strong. Yeah, so in the new world, um, new world, I don't... Right, it's not a great <laughs> phrase, but that's... It's not a great phrase. Always imagine quotation marks around yes. it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there are only three seats of the Inquisition. Um, we have one in Mexico City, one in Lima, and then um, about 40 years later, after the first two, we get one established in Cartagena in 1610. So these are only three seats that address, three tribunal seats that address these um, issues of Judaizing people in the vice royalties. And so if you lived under the radar, you could live relatively unbothered or even unnoticed by the Inquisition. Um, people who get in trouble tend to be those who um, amass a lot of wealth or who have a lot of clientele. Um, who are much more public figures. Um, and so, yet when you're bringing your knowledge over, you've typically obtained it um, in a safe place in Europe. So um, in places like Amsterdam or the University of Padua in Italy, these were places where um, Jewish people could obtain their medical knowledge safely. They were sort of safe havens. Um, but then when you come over, uh, there's not, unless you can prove you have old Christian ancestry, you're not allowed to be in university. So unless you came with a university education in medicine, you don't get one in the vice royalties. Um, I have one surgeon who had an old Christian mother um, who apparently didn't know that her husband was um, Jewish. And so based on their son's ancestry, their, their son using his mother's ancestry, he was able to get a university education in Santiago in Chile. Um, but that's very, very much the exception and not the norm. Within these communities or mm -hmm. kind of nations as they, as they arrive, they, like you say, have to maintain a relatively low profile, mm -hmm. right? Um, which makes your work incredibly hard, which is why I'm really fascinated, because in order for them to succeed as, as individuals and as communities and as, as a nation, they needed to remain a level of anonymity in a way, while Absolutely. still passing on knowledge in, in various forms. But yeah. uh, you're trying to investigate how they actually passed on this knowledge. But part yeah. of it is that they tried to keep it hidden for a good they reason. They really tried to keep it hidden. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so... Um, you know, I, 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 I want to ask about, you know, what some of the 
hurdles may have been, but I think, you know, when you, when you lay that over with COVID, it gets all kind of messy, oh, yeah. but um, <laughs> I, I, I am curious to hear, you know, what are some of the things that you found thus far in terms of um, maybe how, how well the oral teachings were or whether it was mm-hmm. all written down and passed kind of secretly between family to family, like how was, how were these kind of knowledge uh, frames passed? Yeah, so we have to sort of look at the way that other bodies of knowledge were preserved and passed on to attempt to build um, a hypothesis or a picture of how medical knowledge might have been built and passed on. Um, So following forced conversions and expulsions in Spain and Portugal, some people truly did convert to Christianity and become devout Christians. They abandoned their Jewish faith and became um, strictly Christians. Others practice their faith in secret. They're often called crypto-Jews, which is like a a hidden Jew, basically. Um, And because generationally, this knowledge of how to practice your faith would not be able to be passed on, um, there was a lot of guesswork. And so crypto-Judaism in the vice royalties is sort of a different faith altogether from traditional Judaism. Um, A lot of them don't know Hebrew. A lot of them don't know, um, apart from the edicts of faith, but I'll explain in just a second, um, how to maintain Jewish customs. Um, So the edicts of faith are announcements put out by the church um, that basically uh, give a list of known practices of Jewish people. So fasting. Um, on certain days of the week, uh, clean linens on Saturdays, fasting in the month of September, not eating pork, these sort of common knowledge aspects of Judaism. Um, And so people practicing crypto Judaism will adopt these practices based on what the church told them Jews do. Um, And so they're building a cultural knowledge after generations of being forced to forget essentially. And so then this knowledge is passed down from generation to generation. And again, it's a a different Judaism than traditional Judaism because it has aspects of Christianity. Like there might be saint worship, there might be um, attendance uh, attendance at mass. And so we have to sort of look at the way this knowledge is transformed and preserved and map it onto different types of knowledge until we can find exact proof that, oh, look, here's this medical knowledge that completely was preserved um, through these networks. And so I, I need to get to an archive. <laughs> but yes, that's how we're sort of approaching it for now. <laughs> Where are some of the archives where you could go if suddenly there was a way to do so safely? Um, So Mexico City, um, most of their inquisition cases are actually there in Mexico City. For the other tribunals like Lima and Cartagena, their inquisition cases are primarily in Madrid, Spain at the National Historic Archive. Um, So Spain's not faring much better than us right now. So it may be a while before (laughs) I can get to either place. 
Yeah, it's not like just going to the library, you know, yes. just, just on campus. It's uh, okay, right. Very different in the, in the sense of archive that I, I, I think of. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, so I mean, luckily um, some of it's available online, um, but definitely not all of it, so. Um, I imagine that most people listening to this have not had the experience of going into archives. What's it like to walk into one? What, what do you look for while you're there? Do you wear uh, anything special so like your like hand oils don't get on very old pages <laughs> of a book or something? <laughs> so the gloves are actually a really big debate. Um, yes, it protects the paper from oils, but it also sort of desensitizes your touch. So you tend to be rougher with the documents if you have gloves on, either uh, cotton gloves or latex or uh, nitrile gloves. So there's sort of a debate um, as to the efficacy of gloves in archival research, but it tends to differ by archive. Uh, for example, in Mexico City, they um, want you to wear nitrile gloves. Um, but yeah, some places prefer that you do and some places prefer that you don't, so. Um, but it's, it takes, it's, it should involve a lot of prep work beforehand. Most archives, even if you can't access any documents beforehand, you can access the finding aids. And so you should go in there knowing what cases you need, what documents you need, so that you can basically walk in, handle this and say, these are what I need. Um, whether you're gonna transcribe there in the archive or just take pictures to transcribe later, you always have such a limited time much less time than you want or need in the archive. Um, so preparation beforehand is absolutely key. Fun fact, the archive in Mexico City is in an old jail. <laughs> so the documents that are on microfilm, you have to go into a jail cell to look at. You're like locked in a jail cell with your microfilm in the dark to take your pictures. <laughs> Which seems rather appropriate, right? Because if- yeah. Uh, if if the Spanish were to have found these documents, you would have gone to jail, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's super eerie in there. Um, there were a lot of political prisoners in the jail. So you get oh, wow. quite claustrophobic looking at microfilm. But <laughs> well, what do these documents look like and how do you read them? So um, they're... Most of my documents are about four centuries old. Um, they are written on parchment. They were written with a quill and ink. Um, so when you have the documents themselves, not access, even actually accessing them online to bleed through is an issue. Um, and it sort of messes up your trying to read. Um, but you, like I learned paleography, which was basically um, understanding the centuries-old Castilian, uh, the legal jargon, um, understanding that there is no one way to spell certain words. It's very phonetically based. There are a myriad abbreviations uh, that you just sort of become familiar with after reading so many of them. Um, yeah, it's, there's also sort of like a hybrid language, like um, I'm reading some primary source letters um, of some of Blas de Paspinto, actually. Um, and he was from Portugal and he spoke Spanish and Portuguese. Um, and so his letters are sort of this hybrid Spanish Portuguese language. And so my diction, my Portuguese dictionary is always up on my computer because I'm not as great with Portuguese. So. <laughs> 
That sounds very frustrating as, as a Spanish speaker who will often look at Portuguese and think, oh, that's Spanish. No, it's not. Yeah. To have, to have, <laughs> to have like, not Spanglish, but Porcha Spang, Porca, Porcha yeah. Spanglish. That sounds very Absolutely. <laughs> exactly. So my pronunciation trying to read it is not great when it's the hybrid Spanish Portuguese. <laughs> Um, so this gets us into uh, another aspect where the items that are written down on, I'm not going to say paper, but parchment, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that seems to be a little bit more of the, um, not mm, a, a bad pun, more the like tangible practices that were supposed to be done. But you also right. mentioned that there was a rhetoric around what the crown was mandating and mm-hmm. I'm I'm curious to know how um, how would you begin to understand what the rhetoric of that time was compared to what is like physically on parchment? How would you compare the two? So Inquisition rhetoric uh, in Inquisition cases is very easy to discern. There is a language of um, devotion to the church. So you'll hear accusations against our Holy Mother Faith or against our Mother Church or something like that. Um, So when you're reading Inquisition cases, it's very straightforward. Um, The rhetoric is very... um, Like couched in blasphemy almost. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) couched in blasphemy. And it's also based very much on the populace policing each other. Um, because all of these cases start via denunciation from the populace. That an investigation does not start unless you are denounced by someone you know, basically. Um, and so it's sort of a, I think the word I'm thinking of is subversive, like a, you know, you were, you only come before the Inquisition if you were betrayed by someone, basically. So yeah, they're trying um, to take advantage of those familial networks and trade mm-hmm. networks. Yeah, and absolutely. Root people out. Yeah, and that's unfortunately, fortunately, unfortunately, the way to try to find these hidden voices is by seeing where these networks proved susceptible, where they were infiltrated by the Inquisition. Yeah, there's a interesting, interesting aspect there because of the dual um, incentives, I mm-hmm. guess. Um, yeah, I'm, absolutely. I, one of the things that stuck with me after listening to a lot of the Freakonomics podcast, mm-hmm. it was one of the first like science and academically aimed podcastings I listened right. to, is that the, the common theme is that you have to understand people's behavior based on what things they're incentivized to do. And that sometimes that's a money incentive and that's a traditional economic thing, but usually there's some kind of benefit people are seeking after. And so we've got dual incentives here Mm -hmm. of I need to get knowledge. I need to get access to people to work with, but I will make more money if I'm the only surgeon in this district. Absolutely. If I'm the only surgeon who treats six slaves, then I get sort of a monopoly on the market. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Actually, can we can we marinate on on the point that Daniel made just now? That um, I guess it's it's like finally coming to me that the 
one of the kind of main avenues that you're able to kind of understand the historical context is by these documents that that you know explicitly say like oh you know th- I'm, I'm denouncing this person mm-hmm. these are all the possessions that they have so in in the kind of denunciation and potential breaking of their community you're also able to because of those like those are actually you know, written documents mm-hmm. you're able to then discern how people live their life and how knowledge was passed so how do you think of the fact that the documents that you really need to understand the historical context are also the documents that like put people Seal this to person's fate yeah yeah it's incredibly difficult I've been actually just this week reading and speaking with my advisors like how do I I mean I've chosen a desperately sad topic <laughs> <laughs> I really have yeah so there's how, no getting around that yeah. How do I, you know, write this history, analyze these events, understand these people without um, one being so clinical that I sort of lose the human side, um, but also being so depressed and apologetic about it that I can't effectively analyze these histories. And it's sort of... Um, I guess it's kind of a tightrope that you walk. Um, that's kind of the danger dealing with social history is that you get such real stories, terribly sad stories. Um, so yes, it's something I'm learning as I go. <laughs> Any lessons you've learned on the way that you could share? That was also as far question. as like. <laughs> how to learn about and think about these groups without being overwhelmed by it honestly sometimes I am overwhelmed by it (laughs) sometimes you need to just step away but for me it's you know maybe trying to find a way amidst these terrible things that happen that maybe there is a way that their knowledge or their culture persevered that we might be able to find that doesn't have to remain hidden anymore. So I think that's sort of the motivation, I guess. So uh, I'm gonna put you on the spot with the in, impossibly difficult question. Um, oh no. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm warning you now. Um, okay. you know, but there, there's that there's that classic phrase that you know history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. I, I wonder if when you're reading these documents and how there's an underlying history that is not really talked about but is mm-hmm. present, you just have to kind of put a lot of pieces together from way back when. You know, do you see any parallels from what you're reading, um, kind of in these in, in this you know 17th century times, but mm-hmm in how forgotten history or secret history is, you know, becoming aware and helps us understand like our current day in, um, in, well, in current day. Yeah, so this is sort of another tightrope, um, I guess, in history and in history of science um, in general. Um, one is that we can't understand where we are unless we understand how we got here. Um, And that's sort of the motivation um, in studying history. But also it's really important in your research and analysis to not uh, build a sort of teleological or positivist um, 
timeline. Like sometimes things just happen. It's not necessarily one stepping stone on the way to, I guess if we're looking at histories of anti-Semitism, anti-Judaism, not everything is leading up to the Holocaust. Anti-Jewish sentiment, um, yes, absolutely has deep roots um, all the way back to the start of Christianity. Um, but that doesn't necessarily follow that every single thing leads to the Holocaust. If we frame it that way, we fail to look at events as they happened in their own context. And we tend to look at them only as something that led to something else rather than something that took place of its own accord in its own context, in its own time. Um, and so we sort of have to walk this tightrope of understanding where we are by knowing what happened in the past, but also understanding that we aren't only here because these things happened in a certain way. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I, I think that there's a lot of temptation to try to put our own motivations and worldview on top of people in a different time. Absolutely. We have to Which like a historical analysis. Yeah, for sure. Make sure that you are researching and analyzing in the context of, in this case, 17th century Spanish vice royalties and not the 20th, 21st century um, looking back. So we have to try to remove those lenses as best we can. I mean, a histor historian's always going to have their own biases. Um, it's unrealistic, just like it's unrealistic to expect science not to have certain biases or scientists not to have certain biases. Um, historians have those too. It's just a matter of acknowledging them and trying not to let them impact your analysis. I think something that people often don't know about history is how much it has in common with other methods of academic uh, pursuit, I guess in that a, a historian is, if they're uh, not just trying to write popular bestsellers, they're, they're not yeah. going with a specific story in mind. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, they're, they're going and gathering evidence and trying to find an explanation that fits best with the things that the evidence is telling you. And absolutely. That you end up is not necessarily going to be the final say on it. You could find mm -hmm. something else that could reflect differently. But I think that people think of history more of reading other histories rather than creating histories. Right. No, I like I go in with a hypothesis as well. And I try not to let theory drive my research. Um, you know, if I find something and then later a theory fits maybe only that aspect of a theory fits. I don't make my research fit a certain theory, but I do go in with a hypothesis and then I gather information and it's not always right. Sometimes, you know, I may find that no, medical knowledge was not, you know, something that was passed through these networks. Um, and basically until I'm proven wrong, I just have to keep searching. <laughs> That's what makes it a good hypothesis too, because if, medical knowledge was not circulated on these networks where so much other knowledge was circulated, then it's mm -hmm. important to know why it wasn't circulated. Yeah, for sure. So this might be uh, a good time to kind of uh, transition into thinking of, you know, 
the the history that you're researching and as you had mentioned keeping in mind that not every instance kind of kind of leads up to to the next to the next successive event but Mm -hmm. I am really curious as to what experiences you had that eventually led you to researching 17th century Jewish history in the vice royalties because that's a rather niche (laughs) subject (laughs) so um, I'm really curious how how you maybe got first exposed to history and um, or maybe it was a bit of a roundabout way I always knew I wanted to study history Um, so I declared it immediately in entering college. And then um, I was actually an education double major here at OSU first. Um, Wait, and then Can I, I pause? Can I ask oh, why you wanted to study? Like what made you want to study history in the first place before, before you even got to college? <sighs> I was a weird kid. I, <laughs> <laughs> I just, I read so many historical fiction novels as a kid. I was fascinated by cemeteries and the things you could find out about oh. people just based on these like trying to contextualize their birth and death years, like what happened in between things that I know about. So I was, it's always just been something sort of ingrained in me. So I declared it immediately in college. Um, I was a double major and I planned on teaching high school history. Um, And then I took our required history courses, our seminar um, and met my current advisor for the first time. And she sort of screwed up all my plans. I'm really grateful to her for it, but she sort of messed it all up, uh, Professor Von Germerton. Um, and so I worked with her for my master's where I did, I focused on gender and sexuality um, and did my first archival research trip years ago. And then it just sort of snowballed from there. Here I am learning paleography and choosing really, really sad topics to research. (laughs) And where do you see yourself going next? Whether in like topics that are on your to-do list or like places where you'd want to be doing those um, next steps? Yeah, I I mean, places where I wanna do them, I'm not sure I would, I mean, obviously working in academia, you're options are a little bit limited. <laughs> um, whether I love teaching, I teach now and I really love teaching. So I would like to keep doing that. Um, but I think history of medicine has sort of gripped me. Um, and I'm also really fascinated with food history and the way that it, the way that foods are used as medicines. And so I kind of see that sort of being a trajectory for me. Um, I, I presented book at a conference in Bruges in 2016, and they had a medical history museum. I think that's probably where I took the medical history route. That was probably where I turned because it was right at the end of my um, master's and then I did my PhD and here I am. (laughs) Did you know that you wanted to pursue a PhD at the end of your master's? Or was it kind of an accidental stepping stone that you were like, hey, This is great. Yeah, well, I planned to do it eventually. Like it was sort of a nebulous thing, like, okay, I'll get around to it. Um, And then I started teaching and knew that it would sort of boost my teaching credentials, especially teaching in higher education. Um, And so I'll get around to it became the next year I started. (laughs) 
So I keep planning to take breaks in my education and it never really happens. <laughs> Do you have any advice that you'd like to share? And who is that advice intended for? Um, well, I guess since we are dealing with quarantine, um, <laughs> I've sort of been talking with my cohort members about how we've all had to adapt our research methods for uh, this context right now. Um, and we've really just had to learn to sort of be flexible, um, you know, access what you can online. Your topic, your research topic might change and maybe it'll change for the better, you know, owing to these restrictions on travel and what's available to you. Um, but I've also really seen a lot of camaraderie come out of this quarantine. Um, some of us have reached out to scholars who might research similar topics. You know, when you're in the archive, even if you find something that's not gonna directly relate to this project, if you find something interesting, you're always photographing it. So you always have extra cases. Um, and so some scholars have been wonderfully helpful in sharing these primary source cases. Um, and so being adaptable and really being sort of creative in accessing your primary sources has been incredibly helpful. Um, and it's been a nice sort of sense of camaraderie throughout all of this too, so. And then I think uh, the other question that we typically ask is if you have a song that you'd like to be outro to, so. Uh... <laughs> um, well, I was trying to think of a topical song, but there probably aren't very many songs written about my topic. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, you'd be surprised. There's a lot of songs. I wonder if the Decemberists have a song about this. <laughs> <laughs> if you find one, you're welcome to use it. Uh, so one, I, my favorite song in Spanish has nothing to do with this. But it's called Cielito Lindo, and it's kind of melancholy, I guess. So maybe that'll... There's a version that Lin-Manuel Miranda sings, if you can find it. <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking to us today. That was immensely fascinating, and I hope thank that you, you so write a book someday so we can read it. Oh, good. Yeah, absolutely. I will let you know, and I'll send you photos. <laughs> This episode was originally recorded on November 30th. Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it. Give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID. The theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Hannon. A special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow this show and podcast to be possible. The show was started by Gian Kemvar and Joey Holbert in 2012 to learn about our current hosts, other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration. Inspiration dissemination is recorded live and any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. Thank you for listening. <laughs>